Uh, we're in a continuing study from one of the great books of the Bible, one of the preeminent books of the Old Testament, surely, which is the book of Deuteronomy, a book that Jesus quoted regularly and often throughout his three-year public ministry. Many have argued that Jesus' favorite book of the Bible was Deuteronomy. So frequently did he reference <coughs> scriptures from that great book, some of them uh, his most important statements in, uh, in the Bible. So we're very, very grateful for this time, first time I've treated in depth the book of Deuteronomy, and it's been wonderful. And today you're going to hear a message on a subject you may have never heard before. It's the first time I've ever brought a message on this subject on a Sunday morning, and it may be the last time that you ever hear it as well, not because it's controversial, but just because it's so rare. Um, how many of you have a place where you can run to find safety and peace and security when the world goes spinning out of control around you? Do you have a place of refuge that you can go to that calms your spirit when you need to get away? I think it was Thomas Wolfe who said you can't go home again, but I've never found that to be true. My home, the place of my birth, is Nashville, Tennessee, and I've always been able to go home. In fact, Mama's house, for 55 of my 59 years, has always been a place of refuge for me. It's a place where I've contemplated, where I've sought God and asked for His vision for the future. It's a place where I've planned many of our sermon series. Mama sold that house not long ago, and she told me, well, you can still come home, it's just to a different home. So I'm going to have to kind of frame that in a different kind of way, but I've always had a refuge where I can run. For Jesus, it was the Garden of Gethsemane. We know from the Bible that that was a place where Jesus' soul was calmed, where he found peace. We also know he loved to go to the mountains where he retreated, where he needed to spend time with God in prayer. Do you have a place like that? A place where you can retreat? when you just need the world to slow down and let you get off. Well, as we continue in our study of Deuteronomy, it's interesting that we come across a passage that reminds us that sooner or later we're going to need a place where we can run to for safety in time of trouble. And God, as he prepares this second generation of Israel to go in and inherit the land that he had promised to their ancestor Abraham, God gives them six of these kinds of places. All up and down the land of Israel, they're called cities of refuge. How many of you have heard the concept of the cities of refuge before? How many of you have ever heard a sermon on the cities of refuge before? Probably not very many of you. And that's why today I want us to carve out this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 19. I don't want us to gloss over it or skip over it because I think it's worth it to spend a few minutes to be reminded of what these cities were, why they were there, and why they still matter to the people of God living in the days of the gospel. Notice with me the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 19. Those of you that are physically able, I invite you to stand with me as we honor and reverence the reading of the holy word of the living God. The Bible says, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, 
and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourself in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distance <clears throat> and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the ax to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes <clears throat> his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities, verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Father, this morning we're grateful to be in your house today and we're thankful for the word of God. And I pray that as we take a few moments and reflect on this important provision for the nation of Israel, living as a theocracy in a land given to them by God under a single king who was God himself, I pray that you will help us to not only understand what it meant from the perspective of history, but what it foreshadows and what it means for all of God's people, even here in the precious year 2022. For the glory of Christ we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, Hillcrest, and you can be seated. The cities of refuge. We're going to talk about the subject today, the hiding place. These cities of refuge are kind of like spiritual gifts. If you want to understand spiritual gifts, you can't just go to one passage. You've got to go to four in the New Testament where they're spoken of and talked of. And the same is true with the cities of refuge. There are three seminal passages in the Old Testament that deal with the subject of the cities of refuge. If you've been careful in your reading, you know that Moses has already mentioned this concept in the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. But the most important teaching about the cities of refuge are found here in Deuteronomy 19. But then the seminal passage is actually in the book of Numbers, chapter 35. That's where they're mentioned for the very first time by Moses. And then later in Joshua chapter 20, after the children of Israel have entered into the promised land, Joshua then brings up the subject and basically says to the people of Israel, remember what Moses told us back in the book of Numbers and in Deuteronomy, now we've actually got to do it. And here's how we're going to do it. So when you take those three seminal passages together, you kind of glean a comprehensive understanding of the cities of refuge and why they're in the Bible. And I want us to talk about the importance of these cities from both a practical and a spiritual perspective this morning. So if you already put your thinking caps on with me, would you say amen? And I want to do it from four perspectives. Let me just ask a few questions to set the stage for our discussion this morning. First of all, why were these cities needed? Why are they there to begin with? Why are they stipulated? 
Well, Moses answers the question, as you should have noticed here in verse number 4 of Deuteronomy 19. This is the provision for the manslayer, not for the murderer. Did you see the difference? Say amen. For the manslayer, who by fleeing there may, what? Save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor, say the word, unintentionally, without having hated him in the past. The Bible says he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue him, overtake him, and of course, kill him. <clears throat> so, remember we're in a position where Moses is preparing this second generation of Isra uh, Israelites to enter the land of promise, to do what their previous generation were prohibited uh, from doing because of their disobedience. And as they prepared to enter the land, remember, uh, there's no organized police force in order to keep order. And in lieu of that, what God instituted as a nation living under his divine kingship is uh, a concept known as a basic law of retribution. And he does that as a means of maintaining order in society. It's known as lex talionis in the Latin, the law of retaliation. You probably know it best from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's right. Well, that's the law of lex talionis. You poke out my eye, the penalty for that is I get to poke out your eye. You knock out my teeth, the penalty for that is I'm going to knock out your teeth. And this concept of the law of retributive justice, you steal from me, I'm going to cut off your hand, so forth and so on, this law of retributive justice was there, and everybody knew it was there. And the whole point was to realize something that we need to realize today, that crime carries consequences. Because evidently, we've lost that concept in the good old USA. Well, God places that there so that everybody would know you can't just live like you want to live. You've got to restrain your urges, restrain your behavior, or there's going to be a price that was paid. And that was particularly applied in cases of bloodshed where somebody's life was taken. Exodus 21 and 14, for example. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar, in other words, remove him from the community of faith, uh, that he may die. Or in Genesis 9, in the wake of the flood, which was God's judgment itself on an unrepentant, out-of-control people, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That is the basis for what we know as capital punishment, and it comes from this underlying concept that we've already addressed in our study of the Ten Commandments, namely that God is the author of life, and God takes life very seriously as the creator of life, and he wants human beings to take life seriously as well and see it as precious as he does. Uh, now, when we get to the 20th chapter of Joshua, we find out how that punishment is to be exacted. When there has been malicious intent <clears throat> there, we're in, introduced to what uh, is called in Hebrew, uh, an avenger of blood, goel hadam, an, uh, an avenger of blood, literally a redeemer of blood. And this was a, usually a close family member, uh, a kindred person in that person's family, or if the person didn't have family, somebody that was in that person's clan or in that person's community. 
and he was authorized to avenge the family by taking the life in retribution of somebody that was killed. So think of him as a bounty hunter. If you took somebody's life with malicious intent, there was somebody that was going to be on your tail. And their purpose was to hunt you down and snuff you out, basically. He could legally track the murderer down and kill him right on the spot wherever he found him. But God makes a distinction between murder and manslaughter. The first, of course, is intentional and malicious. The other is accidental uh, or unintended. And Moses here in Deuteronomy chapter 19 gives you an example of an unintentional kind of slaying when he talks about, you know, two guys being out in the forest chopping wood and, and one of them is using a rickety piece of equipment and as he goes to swing the axe, the axe head flies off the handle. And so if you want to know where we get the phrase, fly off the handle, it comes right out of the Bible. Somebody say amen. For some of y'all, that'll be the only thing you remember from this message the rest of the day. That's where flying off the handle comes from. Well, when somebody flies off the handle, they, they've just lost it, right? They're out of control. Uh, and so uh, the handle flies off, hits the partner in the head, knocks him unconscious, and he dies. But there's no hatred. I mean, that wasn't an intentional thing. There was no malice of forethought. Uh, but that didn't mean that the family of the community avenger wasn't going to come after him to make things e equal because they don't know what the details are. All they know is they've got a family member who's died. So in these kinds of cases, that perpetrator, knowing that somebody was going to be coming after him to avenge the blood loss of that community or family member, that perpetrator now under the law of God has got a place they can flee to find refuge and to find safety, what we would call asylum, to protect them as the process of law ran its course. We call that due process of law. And so the person could flee to the city of refuge and let the law take its proper course. But where were these cities? So that's why the cities were needed. Where were these cities located? Well, time doesn't allow me this morning to go into great detail here, but there are six of them. We read about three of them here in, Ex or in Deuteronomy chapter 19. But when we read all three passages together, we know we end up with six of these cities, and they're located in what we call Levitical cities. Now think with me for just a moment. We've already made clear that the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, did not get an allotment of the land because God didn't want the priest. The tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. God doesn't want the... Think of it this way. God wouldn't want all of the ministers in the Southern Baptist Convention located just in the state of Florida, now would he? He wants us all over the country, right? And that's part of the reason why he didn't give the Levites an allotment of land. He wants them scattered throughout all 12 tribes. And so what God does is he tells the 12 tribes they're not going to get, the other 11 tribes, he tells them they're not going to get an allotment of land, the Levites. You're going to give them some of your cities, and so there are 48 of these cities throughout, all up and down the land of Israel, the promised land, that are given to the priestly people of God, scattered all over the land. And one of those cities, by the way, was Hebron, which was a city that was given to Caleb because of his faithfulness. I don't even have time to go there this morning. Caleb had to give up his city. We have trouble giving up the tithe. That's another sermon for another day, right? 
That was last week's city. Caleb had to give up his entire city in order to follow God's will. But these 48 cities are there. And I say all of that to say that the cities of refuge were in six of these 48 Levitical cities. God wanted the cities of refuge to be in cities where the priests were in control, not politicians. Somebody say amen. All right, now you're with me, right? So he gives them six of these cities of refuge controlled by the priestly class where they could find sanctuary and refuge. Three of these cities are named by Moses in Deuteronomy 4, verse 43. Check it out. Bezar in the wilderness on the tableland. That's in the south for the Reubenites. <clears throat> Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites. That's in central Palestine. And Golan in the Bashan for the Manasites. Golan, many of you have heard of the Golan Heights up in the far north, the mountainous region. Now, all of these are on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which is in modern-day Jordan. But then later, the other three cities are named in Joshua chapter 20, and they're on the west side of the Jordan in what we know as Israel today. That's Joshua 20 and verse 7. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, the north country, hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, right in the middle of the land, and Kiriath Arba, Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, down in the south. So you get the picture here? You got two groups of three cities, one, of them on the, one set of three on the east side of the Jordan, where the Israelites are in Deuteronomy before they take the land, the other three on the west side of the Jordan after they conquer the land, and the three cities on each side of the Jordan are equally spaced apart, one in the north, one in the center, one in the south. And so if you found yourself an accidental manslayer needing to get to a place called the cities of refuge, one of them would have been no more than a day's journey on foot, no matter where you were in the land of Palestine. And that's all engineered by the sovereignty of God. Isn't God good? Somebody say amen. You could get there, and you could get there really quickly. Uh, but what happened once a fugitive got there? Well, that raises question number three. How did the cities function? That is, how did they operate? Well, Moses doesn't go into detail here. He just tells them to do it. He leaves the instruction to Joshua, who he knows is going to lead them into the promised land. And so we have to go over to Joshua 20 to find out the legal operating function of the cities of refuge. And let's check that out, Joshua 20, beginning in verse number 4. Y'all still with me? Say amen. amen. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place. And he shall remain with them. And if the avenger blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, 
to the town from which he fled. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Y'all get that? Say amen. Really, three things at play. First, if you're a guilty party, somebody's died at your hand, and it was accidental, you can flee to the nearest city of refuge no matter where you are in the land of Israel, and you be received by the priestly class, the leaders of the city. You could state your case before the elders of that city, and there you would be protected. You would have sanctuary from any bounty hunter that's trying to track you down and avenge the loss of their kindred blood. You'd be given a place to live. You'd be given shelter. You'd be provided for. You'd be given food to eat. In other words, you, you could breathe free, uh, and you would find shelter and rest and peace. But there would be a time, second, that you'd have to be tried. We got to get to the truth here to know what's going on so that we can know what to do with you long term. So that being the case, you would be sent back under safe passage to your hometown. And an assembly of leaders would be gathered together there. It's called an assembly in Numbers 35. There would be an assembly and basically what they would do is they'd have a trial. And once the trial was concluded and the killing was ruled accidental by that assembly in the hometown of the offender, that person would then be escorted back to the city of refuge where he had originally fled. And that leads to the final thing. Once they got back to the city of refuge where they had gone to begin with, they were still considered guilty of taking a life. They didn't get, just get to walk free. This is going to be important. They were guilty not of murder, but they were guilty of manslaughter. And God still found manslaughter because he sees life as so precious. There is still a degree of guilt even associated with manslaughter. But the penalty is not all that harsh. The person goes back to the city of refuge and basically serves a sentence that amounts to house arrest until the Bible says the death of the setting high priest. That has always sounded kind of arbitrary to me because if that's you or me, I'm hoping the high priest is like 97 years old. <laughs> Amen. And he could just keel over and drop dead at any time. Two weeks and I'm gone. Amen. Um, I don't know why that is there. Some say that's just the penalty. That's the sentence. Some see um, kind of a spiritual overtone to it, that the high priest uh, represents some kind of blood atonement, since he's the one that basically offers the sacrifice on the day of atonement, that somehow his death kind of symbolically uh, symbolizes uh, the atonement, the final atonement of the sin of the offender, so that when he dies, that person has had his sins completely atoned for. There's a degree of mystery with that. Regardless, we know what the penalty is. You're there under house arrest. You'll be provided for. You can come and go within the city of refuge. If you ever step foot outside the city of refuge, you're not protected anymore. And we're not responsible for you. But as long as you're here, you can live. <clears throat> and you'll be totally protected. You see, the point of this, brothers and sisters, is to kind of, God is a God of order, the Bible says. Amen. God is not the author of confusion. Neither is he uh, a God uh, who takes life 
unseriously. He's concerned about law and order in society. He's concerned about life, and he wants some degree of order to be in place because what this provision seeks to break is what could be this never-ending cycle of blood revenge. I mean, can you imagine, say somebody catches up with one of these guys who's unintentionally killed somebody, and they snuff out his life. Well, what that meant is now that person has got a relative who's now upset with the blood avenger, and he goes after him to snuff out his life. And that potential cycle could go on and on and on. You're talking about Palestinian version of the Hatfields and the McCoys, for crying out loud. And God says, we don't want that kind of life. And so he puts this situation in place so that there's a degree of due process and, and order while at the same time preserving the sanctity of life itself. And can I make a statement this morning? Would you please note that this is totally different from the self-declared sanctuary cities in the United States of America today? San Francisco, Chicago, they are flagrantly throwing the law back into the face of our elected officials. These sanctuary cities that we're living with today are trying to protect people who are intentionally lawbreakers. You see the difference between the two? They're saying to people, go ahead and break the law and then come here and we'll take care of you. That's not what's happening here. These cities of refuge are part of the law itself designed by God to protect the innocent and encourage due process among his people. Everybody tracking with me so far? Say amen, all right? So here's the thing. What's the meaning for us? You say, okay, preacher, you drugged me out of the house this morning to give me this comprehensive teaching of the Old Testament law. We obviously are not a theocracy. We're living in a country that's a constitutional democracy, rep, constitutional republic. We have elected representatives. We live by the rule of law. So it's a different system for us today. Is there a meaning for God's people today? Is there applicability for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Because the answer to the question is yes, which takes us to a final question that I want to spend the remainder of our time addressing, and that is, are the cities relevant today? Well, the answer is obviously yes and no. No, not just as they are here, but yes, in a spiritual sense, without question. Because just as the cities of refuge served a purpose for the national community of Israel, their presence as an institution, I believe, still speaks to gospel believers today, as children of God living within a spiritual community, a, a kingdom community. And there is application both theologically and practically even for us at Hillcrest uh, today. Let me give you four points of application as we land the plane this morning. First, and I've already indicated this, the cities of refuge remind us of the sanctity of human life. Y'all believe in the sanctity of human life? Y'all believe that God is the author of all life, that God cares about every human life, and that God is concerned whenever a life is taken, especially when it's taken unjustly. We learned that in our study of the Ten Commandments. God put a command in the Big Ten 
that made it very clear, thou shalt not murder. And that's because God reserves for himself when life is given, when life is taken away. God is the author of all life. God wants life to be cherished and respected because he cherishes and he respects life. He wants his people to do the same. And when it's not, and when life is taken maliciously or intentionally or unjustly, God's law is very clear in terms of how that's handled. The life of the offender is to be required. But not every loss of life comes by means of malice. It's not always malicious. It's not always the result of anger. It's not always premeditated. Some lives are lost unintentionally. Some lives are lost in self-defense. We talked about all that stuff back a few weeks ago. And even when that scenario occurs where it's unintentional loss of life, the cities of refuge are there to still remind us the perpetrator still bears a degree of guilt in the presence of a holy God and there is still accountability because life is precious to God and only God and those to whom God delegates that authority have the right to take life. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. Having said that, the cities of refuge, secondly, also remind us of the importance of mercy and grace in our relationships with everybody, even when we don't know all the facts. I mean, these priests in these six Levitical cities called cities of refuge welcomed the offender in even when they didn't know all the facts. They gave them the benefit of the doubt. They treated them with mercy and with grace. And these cities, I think, was a way for God to demonstrate two things about himself, both his justice and his mercy at the same time. God is a God of justice. In other words, God's always going to judge sin. But God is also a merciful God. You believe that this morning. Mercy triumphs over judgment, the Bible says. That's the whole reason that we have the cross. The cross is a reminder that God wants to forgive us our sins. He's made a way possible for sins to be forgiven. And God wants to deal with us as a merciful, loving, tender, heavenly Father. But God is also a holy God. And God is going to judge sin. And the cities of refuge remind us of that. They're pictures of God's justice and they're pictures of God's mercy all in one at the same time. So by establishing these cities, God reminds us both that life is precious and that life should be valued and cherished. But he also reminds us that we need to approach people in circumstances with mercy and with grace and with compassion and with tenderness. I mean, it's also a reminder that the people of God, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't take matters of law into our own hands. I need an amen right there. We don't take matters of law into our own hands. That's not our responsibility. Justice matters. Justice matters. But vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Jesus taught very clearly that Christianity is by nature non-retaliatory. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. I mentioned that a moment ago. But I say to you, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And let me remind you, most people are right-handed dominant. 
for me to slap Stevie Ray upside the head on the right cheek, I got to do it this way. Isn't that right, Steve? That's a backhanded slap for the great majority of people. In other words, Jesus said, when people abuse you in the worst kind of way, turn to them the other. Christianity is, by definition, basically, I'll get to that later, another time, non-retaliatory. Turn the other cheek. What Jesus say in the same passage? If you're being persecuted, love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. Forgive those who wrong you. For if you forgive not men their sins, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you yours. Jesus, the Bible says in 1 Peter, when he was insulted, he made no threats. When he was reviled, he reviled not in return. But he kept on entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus opened up not his mouth. He went to the cross like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he left vengeance to his heavenly Father, God. That's one thing we learn from the cities of refuge, that vengeance belongs to the Lord and God puts in place a process to protect the offender by showing mercy and grace in our relationships with them. And then the third thing we can learn from the cities of refuge, are y'all still with me? Say amen. Is that the church ought to be a place of safety for all people. Did you know that this body of believers called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to be a city of refuge for a lost and dying world? Pains me to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Not all churches are safe places. Some churches are critical. Some churches are judgmental. Some churches are downright hostile in times. In many churches, you'll walk in. What's on the sign of the church? What's missing from this church? And then the letters U and R will be out. Then they'll say it, you are, right? Come and join us. Come grow with us. And you're welcome when you walk in the door until you make a mistake. And that's when the ammunition starts to come out. When somebody fled to one of these cities of refuge, they were welcomed. They were to be surrounded by the people who control the city. They were to be cared for. They were in a place where they could breathe freely and that's what the church is supposed to be to anybody that walks in the door without respect to creed race color religion any of those kinds of things we may not condone a lot of stuff and we won't condone a lot of stuff but that doesn't mean we're not supposed to be welcoming to all people a city of refuge last time I checked we're all sinners in the eyes of God we've all violated the law of God I'm getting ready to start preaching here in just a minute if you're like me, you grew up in the 90s or, you know, spent a part of your young adult life in the late 80s and early 90s. Y'all remember the, the series on TV, Cheers? You remember Cheers from the 80s and 90s? You know what made that bar so popular? The theme song basically summed up what the whole series was about. It was a place where people could get away. Don't you need a place where you can get away from all your worries? That sure would help a lot, the song said. It, it was a place where you could find acceptance. Why were those people there and not at home? Because their home was a hell on earth and that bar was a place of community 
of peace, of safety. It was a place where they wouldn't be unfairly judged. It was a place where everybody cared. It was a place where everybody knew their name. That's what the church, listen, you shouldn't have to go to a bar to find that kind of community. All of those things and more ought to be easily findable in every local church on every street corner in the United States and around the world. God help us never to forget that the church is to be a city of refuge, a place where guilty people, guilty people can find safety and acceptance and may we at Hillcrest always be willing to offer it without question. Another thing that it teaches us finally and even most importantly is that these cities of refuge remind us that Christ is our ultimate hiding place. Please don't miss that, brothers and sisters. Those cities of refuge are a picture of Jesus Christ. Would you not agree with me that Jesus is our hiding place? That Jesus is our refuge in a time of storm, our refuge from the awful consequences of sin. Because that's what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that we're all sinners. The Bible teaches us that sin renders us guilty before a holy God. The gospel teaches that we've got an avenger who's on our tail. His name is the devil. And he's carrying a sickle in his hand. And he's out to snuff our life. Death and the devil are on the prowl. And we're desperate for a place of security. We're desperate for a place of safety. And if that sin is never adjudicated, you can be sure that God's justice will prevail in the long run and you will surely die. But Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Christ paid the penalty with his death on the cross. Christ died so that we wouldn't have to die. And that's why the greatest invitation in the Bible is found in the simple word C-O-M-E. It's an invitation, and Jesus says it, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. I remember the old song we used to sing it when I was a boy. My soul in sad exile was out on the sea, so burdened with sin and distressed, till I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice. And I entered the haven of rest. I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I'll sail the wide seas no more. Oh, the tempest may sweep or the wild stormy deep, but in Jesus I'm safe evermore. You need a place like that that you can run to in the wild and stormy world in which we live. You may think you can find it in all kinds of other places, but you'll be disappointed every time. Because the only hiding place that provides safety and security for eternity is not a city, 
It's not a community. It's not a person in your family. It's not a person at your work. It's not your job. The only hiding place that provides safety, peace, and protection forever and evermore is Jesus Christ. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my shelter and my deliverer. He is my very present help in time of trouble. And only Jesus, brothers and sisters, is our refuge when we're staring certain death eye to eye. And apart from his forgiveness, you need to know it. You're looking death right in the face. But you don't have to die. Why will you die when the sheltering rock is so nearby? Why, oh why, will you die?